Well, this is the third week of our series, What Happens uh, When We Worship. I'm so grateful for the way the Lord has worked uh, through this series in my own heart and my own life. And uh, as I've said to you kind of the, the previous two weeks, when we think about our gatherings, we think about coming together as God's people, it's easy for us to think about what we do for God when we come together. We pray, we sing, we, we, we recite scriptures, we serve, we, we lead, and so on. And it's easy for us to think of in those terms rather than thinking what God does for us when we come together as His people on the Lord's Day. And so what we've been doing in this series, again, this is the third week, is we're looking what God does in us and for us through those very specific elements of worship that we uh, enjoin in together. And so this morning, we're looking at what God does when we give. What does God do when we give? When I was newly married, uh, we, Jenny and I had just gotten married, and we lived in Charlotte, North Carolina. Jenny was a nurse, and she would come home after a long day, a 12-hour shift, and she would uh, proceed to tell me all that she had encountered in that day of work as a nurse. And she, would, she was very excited about it, and, and she was often very detailed in what she uh, would tell me. Well, apparently it was all over my face uh, that I wasn't really that in tune with what she was speak, uh, she was saying to me, and, and to be honest, you know, newlywed, 22, I was very selfish, and I wanted to talk about what I wanted to talk about, and so I know that it was this was clear to her. In fact, uh, she actually stopped telling me about her day, which I didn't notice for a few months, which is not a good thing. Um, but she stopped telling me about her day, and then one day she explained why. She said, "When I come home and I tell you about my day, your eyes glaze over, and I can tell right away you're not interested." This is the way that many of us are with a variety of subjects. There are things that someone may come to us and talk about, and we're just not really that interested. And it's clear all over our faces. But when we talk about money, we're interested in that. When we talk about uh, how we spend our money or how to make money or what God says about money or any of those things, we tend to be uh, very interested in in that particular subject matter. Uh, Well, this is the way it is for us, and this is the way that it was uh, for the first century believers as well. Um, Paul writes to these gifted Corinthians, and he knows that he has their attention. He knows when he talks about money, he has their attention, and what he wants them to know, and and us, by extension, is what God does when we give. So uh, if you have a Bible, I encourage you to meet me in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. So where we'll be spending our time this morning. And uh, let me just give you the main point. The way that I've been doing this, giving the main point and then kind of uh, explaining it through the text. So here's the main point this morning. Uh, when we give, God blesses our obedience, provides for the needs of believers, and elicits praise from His people. So I'm going to look at each one of those three phrases and, and explain what I'm talking about from the text we might say that God's blessings in response to our gener- generosity, our giving, are sort of threefold or three-directional. Um, they are both, the blessings are both inward, outward, and upward. And so we're going to look at all three of those dimensions this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, uh, it's not a long section, so let me just read the whole section, which would be verses 6 through 15. Here reads the word of the Lord. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, 
And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things, at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, He has distributed freely, He has given to the poor, His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. So Paul has just urged his readers, this very gifted but somewhat dysfunctional church at Corinth, um, not to bring embarrassment upon him or on the Lord uh, by failing to give generously to God's kingdom work. Now we'll look at what he says more specifically in a moment, but he then turns from the, from the command to the reward. Joyful, generous, cheerful giving results in a harvest of good outcomes. Even though Corinth was a major city, uh, Filled with culture and commerce, it was still an agrarian society, which means that it was, most of the people there were farmers. And they were, they were aware of, in fact, the sort of analogies and metaphors that would work with them were farming analogies. And, and so Paul talks to them in language that they could clearly understand. Uh, he uses an analogy that would have made total sense to them. Less sowing would necessarily result in less reaping. More sowing would result in more reaping. Now, the analogy applied to us doesn't mean necessarily that a person who gives, for example, $10,000 a year to the kingdom through the church is going to, get, going to have exponentially greater increase or guaranteed a higher financial return than someone who gives, uh, for example, $3,000 a year you know, to the kingdom by way of the church. But what it does mean is such an exercise of faith will be rewarded. You know, the, the pastors that I run in the same circles with, um, guys that are like-minded theologically and philosophically, we, we all tend to really despise the prosperity gospel. Uh, and, and for good reason, we, we should. Uh, but the prosperity gospel is this idea that if you don't have enough money, you don't have a good job, your, your health is not great, then what, it's because you don't have enough faith and you need to demonstrate more faith, which typically means by giving to my ministry, and then you're going to have more of everything you need. The prosperity gospel, sometimes called the health and wealth gospel, and you understand why it's called that, is wreaking havoc, havoc all around the world, particularly in what's called the global south, which is all the continent of Africa, uh, Latin America, uh, some, the, the southern half, you might say, of Asia, really wreaking havoc in the global south, but not just in the global south, also, of course, in our own country. The, the prosperity gospel is, is wreaking havoc. And I hear, I 
love preaching and I preach for a living and I study preachers. I listen to a lot of preachers and I hear a lot of young preachers in particular trying to be the next Stephen Furtick or Joel Osteen or whatever and they start, em- start embodying some of this philosophy and saying some of these things, you know, talking about manifesting your destiny, right, and speaking your blessing into existence, all of this sort of silly and unbiblical stuff. Um, but this is all really rooted in the prosperity gospel, um, which, we, which we despise. We realize there's no gospel at all. But I do wonder, this was the Lord really convicted me this week about this, I do wonder if those of us who are so concerned, rightly concerned about the prosperity gospel are often sometimes actually reluctant to say what the Bible truly says. And that is that God does reward those who give generously. This is what the Scriptures say. Uh, God does bless our generosity. Now, not necessarily with health or with wealth or prosperity or prominence, but nevertheless with real blessings. New Testament scholar Scott Halfman says, or comments on the passage I read this way, since the manner of one's giving reflects the character of one's heart, there is a principle of divine retribution here. God gives back blessings to those who give as a matter of blessing. We would have to do damage to the text in order to deny this. As the first phrase in our main point, we say that God blesses our obedience. And Paul says in this passage that I just read, in in multiple different ways that would have resonated with the congregation he's writing to, he says, you will be enriched in every way as a result of your generosity. This is not flowery language. Uh, This is not, um, he's not talking about just spiritual blessings here. To those who give generously to God's kingdom work, God says He will give them everything they need, which includes the resources to be generous with others. To to paraphrase John Calvin, the more liberal you are in your giving, the more liberal you will find the blessing that God pours out on you. Paul says the same is true on the flip side. The more parsimonious you are, the more stingy you are in your giving, what Paul refers to as sowing sparingly, the more of God's blessings you may very well miss out on. Now that blessing, again, may not be financial or physical. It may be. How else could Paul say to this these group of people, as a result of God's blessing, you're going to be able to give to, more to other people? What we know for sure is that God will strengthen our faith. This is one of the blessings we know for sure. God will strengthen our faith through our giving. Look at verses 8 and 9 again. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. What does God do when we give? That's the point of uh, this message. He gives all grace, He makes all grace abound to us so that we will find that what we have in Christ is actually all sufficient. If I said to you, fill in the blank, we live in an age of blank, how do you think you would respond? What might come 
to your mind immediately. You might think, well, we live in an age of selfishness. Uh, we live in an age of technology, of, of social media. Maybe you think we live in an age of godlessness. We talked about this in our first John series, that God is now sort of weightless in the sense that you know, people do not fear Him, they do not revere Him, His commands do not, uh, uh, do not motivate them to obey. You might say, well, we live in an age of hurry. We're always running around from one place to another. Maybe you say we live in an age of depravity. And I think all of those are, are, are good answers. You know, as they say in Family Feud, good answer. I think that would be a good thing if you say any of those things I think is good. But what comes to my mind is that we live in an age of fear. We fear what the government may try next. We fear disease, uh, getting sick. We fear an economic downturn or the loss of income or the de depreciation of our retirement. We fear uh, natural disasters, tornadoes and storms and so on. Uh, we fear getting in an accident or even worse, our child getting in an accident. We fear that our children won't turn to Christ in faith. We fear that those who look, we fear those who look and sound and believe differently than we do. We fear getting old. We fear death. We live in an age of fear. And I really think that for some people, uh, they really don't know how to live in any other way but to live in fear. I don't know if it's uh, the adrenaline or, or all the stuff they're reading or whatever it is, but they, they, they almost... They can't think of any other way to live but to live in fear. Well, what do we do when we're afraid? We hunker down. We conserve. You ever been to a Walmart when there's a threat of a big storm? We, we tighten our grip. We take on the role of God in our lives. Well, what God calls us to do, and manifested by our generosity, is to actually loosen our grip relinquish control as if we actually ever had control. What God calls us to do is to let go of what we think we need the most, our money, and every time we let go of something we're desperate to hold on to, every time we loosen our grip, so to speak, God reminds us supernaturally and spiritually more deeply of how all-sufficient He actually is, and in fact that He is in control. And so in an age of fear, when we loosen our grip, when we give away what we think we need so much, our money, God deepens our faith. He strengthens our faith by providing what we truly need. And according to Paul, he equips us for future obedience and generosity. Look at verses 10 and 11 again. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. As we give generously, Paul says, God will increase the harvest of our righteousness. You say, what in the world does that mean? Well, this is a reference to the Old Testament book of Hosea. And, and the point is that just as a farmer plants seed, when a farmer plants seed, uh, he realizes there's nothing he can do to make that grow. The growth of the seed 
the produce is actually contingent upon circumstances outside of his control. Sunshine and rain and moderate temperatures uh, and good soil and protection from animals and all kinds of things. So just as a farmer, when he casts seed, acknowledges that the growth and life and so on is outside of his control, what Paul's saying here is when we give, when we demonstrate our dependence upon God for everything, when we let go of our resources, we are acknowledging that life and growth and spiritual vitality and all those things are really only from the Lord. They are a work of God alone. And anything good that comes in our lives, anything that we're able to produce, so to speak, is actually because of God and from God. Any harvest, to continue with the metaphor. By saying that he will, that God will increase the harvest of our righteousness, Paul's saying that God will reward our generosity by causing our faith to grow in such a way that it leads to joyful obedience and further generosity. So again, to continue with this theme, as we loosen our grip on our money, trust in God's good providence, He then allays our fears, all of those things we talked about being afraid of, The more that we surrender control, the more that we submit to God's goodness and God's providence, the more that we see that God strengthens and deepens our faith because God shows himself to be faithful all the time. Well, that begs an important question. Then, What does it look like to loosen our grip on our money, our possessions? In other words, what does it mean to give generously? What does it mean to be liberal in our generosity? What is, it, what, give, what is giving that pleases God? Look at verse 7, if you'll just scan up again. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. 2 Corinthians is called 2nd because naturally it follows 1 Corinthians, which was a letter that Paul wrote to the same church, previously in his ministry. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul said this, Now regarding your question about the money being collected for God's people in Jerusalem, you should follow the same procedure I gave to the churches in Galatia. On the first day of the week, you should each put aside a portion of the money you have earned. Don't wait until I get there and then try to collect it all at once. So in his first letter, Paul instructs the believers at Corinth, to establish a rhythm of giving to the work of the kingdom through the local church on the Lord's Day. This is part of their worship. This is part of what they do when they come together. It's a regular pattern for believers, giving on the Lord's Day. And then in 2 Corinthians, a letter that would come sometime later, Paul answers the question, how much should we give? And the answer is, whatever you've decided in your heart is generous, sacrificial, and worshipful. A lot of Christians believe that they should tithe or give 10% of their income to the local church. You even hear many churches during the giving segment of their worship service talk about bringing their, people bringing their tithes and their offerings. But tithing was part of the old covenant, which we're no longer under in Christ. And if we really did the math on what the Israelites gave, when we really consider uh, the frequency and the amount of seed and fruit and flock, uh, you, we would find that it was actually greater than 20%, not 
In fact, I read a, a study last week which is very, very detailed and somewhat speculative, but it said that the tithe in the Old Testament was actually 23%. Whatever it is, it's, it's more than 10%. But that's not what we're required to give. When Jesus talked about giving, He didn't reiterate or restate the tithing principle. Instead, at least at one point, how did He emphasize the, what we should give? He told a story about a widow and a bunch of self-righteous folks who stood by while the widow gave her money and the self-righteous folks kind of condemned the small amount that she gave. You may recall the story from Mark's gospel. Jesus is sitting down in the temple. There are a lot of rich people who put in large sums of money. And then Jesus sees a poor widow who comes into the box and puts in two lepta in the Greek, which is really about a penny I mean, in terms of uh, a modern equivalence might even say less than a penny. And Jesus calls his disciples around him and said, this widow has put in more than everybody else. And the disciples are like, what What is this guy talking about? How can that be the case? How can that be? We saw what she put in, and it wasn't very much. And Jesus explains, she gave out of her poverty when everyone else gave out of their abundance. And that's, when we think about how much we should give, that's a, really, that's a key difference. One group of people gives out of their surplus what they have left over. That means it doesn't cost them anything. And Jesus is not impressed. This lady comes along and she gives basically everything she has out of her poverty. And she's praised by Jesus. To Jesus, the value of a gift is not measured by the dollar amount, but what it costs the giver. New Testament scholar Alan Cole writes, It is well to remember that God measures giving not by what we give, but by what we keep for ourselves. Many of us are willing to give out of our margins. We have some money left over at the end of a pay period after we've spent what we want on what we want, and we're willing to give that to the work of the kingdom. But I think in keeping with what Paul says and what Jesus communicated by way of a story, maybe we should ask ourselves, Uh, what sacrifices are we making to give to Christ's kingdom? Are we enjoying any less, any fewer cups of coffee? Are we dressing any worse? Are we keeping clothes any longer so that we can support others in other parts of the world? Are we skipping any vacations? Are we going without anything we really want? Now, there's nothing wrong with taking vacations or drinking a a nice cup of coffee or, you know, having nice clothing. Now, that's not the point, but the point is, what are we willing to sacrifice? What are we giving up for the advancement of the gospel and the advancement of Christ's kingdom around the world? This is what Paul in, in the second or his first Corinthians talks about this church at Macedonia they, that, that he commends and that Christ commends. They gave out of their poverty generously. They gave until it hurt for the advancement of the kingdom, we might say. So what is, so how much should we give? You know, what, what, what's the percentage? Well, the question is, what is generous and sacrificial for you? Is it 10%? Is it 5%? Is it 20%? Is it 30%? Depends on a lot of things, doesn't it? Generous and sacrificial giving for some people, I think, is 5%. That's all they can give and still put food on the table. For others, 30% is generous and sacrificial. I know people, and I'm sure you do too, they could give 30% of their income and never ever feel it at all. 
Janine and I have committed through the bulk of our marriage to a 10% plus approach, so 10% to the local church. We also support church plants and other ministries. If you think 0% is all you can give, you might take a look at how you're spending your money. Because, can I just have some real talk here? If you're, all, if you're not giving any at all, it's probably not because you can't afford to give. In reality, it's probably because the advancement of Christ's kingdom is not a priority to you. That's just the reality. Giving is a command for all Christians to obey. How much is not prescribed. When theologian writes, the New Testament does not teach a doctrine of tithing, nor does Paul define what constitutes giving generously. He does not even provide a target number or general guidelines. The only rule, it's a command, is to give freely and generously as an expression of our continuing trust in God's grace. Paul simply assumes that believers will give all they can to meet as many needs as they can in order to glorify God as much as they can. So that's really the principle. Now there's a reason that we don't talk a lot about money here, and there's a reason that we should talk some about money. We don't talk a lot about money because that's really not what we're about as a church. You know, we don't come together just to get as much money as we can uh, or come together to discuss finances. We're here to worship and talk about Jesus, who He is, and what He came to do. So that's why we don't talk a lot about it. And I've been here four and a half years. I've never had a single sermon that I preached on money, you know, per se. So we don't talk a lot about it, but why should we talk some about it? Well, the reason we talk about it some is because when we recognize who Jesus is and what He accomplished, it necessarily causes us to respond a certain way. See, the gospel, what God has done for us in Christ, the good news of God's redemption, forgiveness, and and work through Jesus Christ changes the way that we think. It changes the way that we live. It changes the things that we love. It changes what we run to and what we run from. And it changes what we do with our money. When Paul instructs Christians to give sacrificially, how does he go about it? He appeals to the sacrifice of Jesus, in other words, the gospel. He says in the previous chapter of this same letter, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So before he came to the earth, God the Son enjoyed all the glories of heaven with the Father where he had everything. Talk about wealth. You know, you combine the top 100 billionaires in the world and the wealth of Jesus eclipses that by an infinite margin. And yet, he became the poorest of the poor to roam around the Mediterranean world without a place to lay his head, a homeless man who at times went without food. We're talking about the God of the universe. At the right hand of the Father, everything was his. But if Jesus had held on to his wealth, we would have to die in our spiritual poverty forever separated from the God who made us, condemned to languish in hell forever. But though he was rich, he became poor. He surrendered every divine prerogative and was born of a woman suffering every struggle common to man. He surrendered every treasure to make us his treasure those who would turn to him in faith. And he didn't just become poor. 
He became a curse for us. He took on the holy wrath of God, the innumerable sins of all who would believe, endured the punishment we deserved on the cross so that we could be forgiven of every sin. And not just forgiven, although that's a great part of the gospel, but also granted, given the righteousness of Jesus, so that God looks at us, He sees us as righteous, and given us all the heavenly blessings that are in Christ. So yeah, we were forgiven, but we were also given everything in Christ, and this is all because of Jesus' sinless life, His perfect obedience, His death on the cross, His resurrection. We then are given a righteousness we could never earn, a new identity, a new hope, a new future. And Paul is appealing to the church at Corinth based on this incredible reality. Our God is a giving God. He sent His Son for us. And when we understand that generosity, what happens? Our hearts actually long to give to Him voluntarily, joyfully. When we don't grasp grace, when we don't grasp grace or haven't received the grace of salvation of God, we're not inclined to give. But an understanding of God's grace, past, present, and future, motivates us to give voluntarily and generously. This is why Paul says God loves a cheerful giver. Because those who give cheerfully demonstrate that they really grasp the gospel. Those who give joyfully and voluntarily and cheerfully understand, they demonstrate that they really understand what God has given them in Christ. We might say it this way, our generosity is a thermometer of our spiritual health and vitality. Look at verse 13 again. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ. The word submission is the Greek word uh, upatage, which means to, to come under a person of authority. It's, I think it's probably better translated obedience, which I think is actually the way the NIV translates it. What Paul says is, by your obedience in the area of giving, you're demonstrating that you actually really believe the gospel. Grace-driven generosity is a primary indicator of whether or not we believe the gospel. That's why Paul anchors the command to give in the good news of what they and we have already been given in Christ. One of my favorite preachers of all time, Kent Hughes, writes, Generosity is a sign of a regenerate soul. There is no such thing as a Christian Scrooge. We may know some Scrooges who claim to be Christians, but I don't think you can claim to really know Christ and be a stingy person. The gospel opens our soul and with it our hands. The gospel opens our soul and our hands, and when we give, God blesses that obedience by strengthening our faith. And He does something else, as I mentioned. The second part of that main point. What else does God do? Look at verse 12. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. The second part of that main point that I started out with this morning, I said that when we give, God provides for the needs of His people. Well, here we see it very clearly in the text. Through the giving of God's people, God provides for His servants, His missionaries, His saints, His ambassadors around the world and at home. 
Now, in, in this in his letters to the Corinthians, Paul reminds them of the churches of Macedonia who were poor and destitute and yet gave beyond what they had in order to provide for the needs of the saints. To, to apply that to our situation, when we give here at Capshaw, when you give, your gifts are being used by God to sustain and enable God's servants all around the world. Church planters in India and Nepal and in some of the hardest, most dangerous places in the world. Uh, compassion ministries to abused and battered women in the Middle East. Evangelism ministries in, in Latin America. Not just around the world, and I, I could go on and on. In fact, because of your giving, we've been able to plant uh, nine churches, nine churches in Nepal uh, already in the last year and a half. Not just around the world, though, but here at home. God uses your giving to support uh, homeless men and recovering addicts at the Downtown Rescue Mission to provide guidance, support, and material help to abortion-vulnerable women, to plant churches in Alabama. There are two, two churches in Alabama that we have helped to plant or to get started as a result of your faithfulness and giving. And, of course, your giving supports not just the ministries around the world, not just the ministries at home, but also those who serve here in your local church, Capshaw. The reason that I'm able to spend my week in prayer and Bible study and sermon prep and counseling and ministry planning and uh, in, in reaching out to others and leadership development is because of your faithfulness and giving. I'm grateful to God for the calling that He's placed on my life and I'm grateful to God for your faithfulness in this area. The reason that your pastors are able to do the work that God's called them to do is because of the way that God provides through your generosity. So the first thing we've seen is that God blesses our obedience in the area of giving in a, in a very real way. The second thing is that God provides for the needs of His people. What else does God do? Look at verses 11 through 13. I know we're, we keep sort of toggling back and forth in this passage, but you will be enriched in every way. This is to those who give generously. Uh, which... Uh, to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission. So I mentioned that the third part of this main point was that when we give, God elicits praise from His people. And here's where we see that from the text. When God's people give... They experience the blessing of God in their lives, and when God's people see and experience that blessing, and other people see that blessing, God's people being taken care of by God through His church, God is thanked and praised. God is worshipped. We saw a couple of months ago, if you were here, as we worked our way through 1 John, God's greatest concern is His own glory. And that's the way it should be. We're talking about a holy God, the creator, redeemer, holy God. When God saves people from sin, death, and hell, he does, of course, for their benefit, but ultimately for the praise of his glory and grace. Because God is God, he alone is worthy of our praise and worship. And what Paul says here is that when God's people give, it results in more praise, more worship, and more thanksgiving to God Himself. That alone is reason enough to give cheerfully and joyfully. 
These are the benefits of cheerful, joyful, voluntary, sacrificial giving. This is what God does when we give. Again, our main point. When we give, God blesses our obedience, provides for the needs of believers, and elicits praise from His people. Do you want to grow in your faith? Do you want to have your fears allayed? Do you want to see more clearly than ever how all-sufficient God is? Do you want more people to praise and worship the true and living God? Then cultivate a pattern of faithfulness in giving. Now, many of you, I know, are already doing that. Many of you, most of you, I would imagine. I don't know who gives what, but most of you, I'm sure, are giving generously and joyfully. For the past four years, by God, the time that I've been here, I know that our giving has exceeded our budgeted giving every single year, which is an incredible thing. Praise God for that, even during a pandemic. But not everyone, I would imagine, is giving joyfully or cheerfully or sacrificially. And if you're wondering, what should I do? How should I apply this? If this is what God does, what then should I do in response? Well, here's some practical things to consider. Just take an honest look at your giving and just ask yourself. If you're married, ask your spouse, am I giving in a way that is generous and sacrificial? Establish a pattern of regularity. In other words, say, doesn't have to be once a week or once every other week, but say, this is, we're going to give this amount you know, every two weeks or every month or whatever it is. Establish a pattern of regularity. Here's a third principle. Give in such a way that you must depend on God. And maybe you're saying, you, you don't know how much money I make and how much it would require me to give in order for me to really depend on God. Well, that's between you and the Lord, but give in such a way that you depend on God. Here's another one. Take an interest in the ministries and the missionaries that your church supports. You can go to the website. There's a tab at the top that says missions, and you can look at the various missions and ministries that we support. Find a trusted friend who will hold you accountable. And remember this as you think about all of those things. This is why we always anchor the imperatives and the indicatives. We always anchor the commands of God in what God has already done for us. Before we tell anybody to do anything, we talk about what's already been done by God in Christ. So remember this. If you've never given a dime to Christ's kingdom, if you've held on to your money with such a white-knuckled grip that you've never given anything to the church, well, remember this. God has not written you off. God is not against you. God has not turned His back on you. God is not standing with His arms folded, crossed against you. God sent His Son to die for our sins, including my and your stinginess. This is what God did. Christ died for our stinginess. Christ was always perfectly generous in every way so that His generosity would be credited to us by faith. Now, it doesn't mean that we, it's like with any other sin, we continue in sin. It does mean that we, just like with every other aspect of Christian obedience, we ask ourselves before the Lord. We ask God, search me. This is what David prayed. Search me, O Lord. Search my heart. You know my heart. 
And for maybe, maybe for some of you, your testimony this morning is when I started to give faithfully and generously to the Lord, the Lord just caused my faith to explode. Praise God for that. Maybe for some of you are saying, it's been really difficult for me to give. But I've been able to do it. I've been committed to it. I've been faithful in it. Praise God for that. Maybe for some of you, you said, you know, I've never, maybe you're a new believer. Maybe you're a long-time believer. I've never even thought about giving to Christ's kingdom through the church. Well, just remember as we talked about what God does when we give. He blesses our obedience. He provides for the needs of believers. And he elicits praise from his people. Is there anyone in all the universe worthy of our praise and worship? No, only God alone. May God help us to respond the way he calls us to respond. Let's pray.